Well, hello, and thank you for listening to the Chiropractic Research Podcast Series. My name is Dr. Dean Smith. I am a clinical faculty member in the Department of Kinesiology and Health at Miami University, and I'm also a chiropractor in Eaton, Ohio. My research interests relate to understanding how chiropractic affects motor control and human performance. Thanks so much to all the listeners of the podcast out there. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks for joining in. I really appreciate all of the great reviews on iTunes and the feedback from every one of you. If you like listening to the podcast, please leave a great review on iTunes so we can attract even more chiropractors to listen to the best in chiropractic research. As you may know, I have created a PowerPoint slide presentation for patients that is available on the chiropracticscience.com website. This presentation provides snippets of educational information from the chiropractic and related scientific literature from 200 peer-reviewed articles, 40 of which are from 2016, and I'll be adding about 60 more slides uh, in the near future from the year 2016 and 2017. As for the podcast, my goals for producing these chiropractic research interviews are first to get the word out about chiropractic research from the experts that are actually doing the research, and two, to encourage collaboration of researchers and thirdly, to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. I'd also like to point out that Chiropractic Science has partnered with chirocredit.com to make these podcasts possible. Well, let's get on to the interview today, and I'm really excited to interview Dr. Michelle Myers. We're drowning in information and starving for knowledge, is a quote from Rutherford Rogers. And this axiom aptly characterizes how many see research as it relates to healthcare delivery. Dr. Meyer's professional goal is to facilitate the pragmatic use of research to both inform clinical practice and shape public health policy. Her research has focused on clinical trials that answer practical questions, including are patient outcomes improved with co-management by different provider types? Is short-term treatment or long-term management a better approach for chronic musculoskeletal conditions? What aspects of care matter most to patients? It's essential that the information gained in these and other studies is translated into knowledge that improves patient care, policy guidelines, access, and reimbursement. Dr. Myers is excited about her work because she believes in the capacity for integrative and complementary professions to be a positive force to improve the landscape of healthcare. When not at work, she enjoys traveling, reading, running, and baking pies. I love that. Those sound yummy. <laughs> well, Dr. Myers, it is a, it's a privilege to, uh, to have you on the Chiropractic Science Podcast. Thanks, Dean. It's really a lot of fun to be here. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, let's start with... Um, how, how you became interested in becoming a chiropractor? Sure. So I was enrolled in a highly competitive pre-med program, and I quickly realized that it was the most unhealthy environment I had ever been in before. Um, the stress was just unbelievable. Um, my classmates were engaged in all kinds of unhealthy behaviors, um, 
taking stimulants to study 24-7. No one was active. The environment wasn't very collaborative. It was just highly competitive. And, you know, the irony wasn't lost on me that this was, um, this group of future healthcare providers was really the most unhealthy group I'd ever been affiliated with. So I I decided it wasn't really a culture that I, I wanted for my career and uh, started looking for an alternative way to help people as a healthcare provider, but in a, a, a kind of a cultural environment that was more in sync with my own personal philosophies. Um, and I was from a small town where our local chiropractor was a primary contact provider who did a lot of things for his patients in addition to focusing on musculoskeletal disorders, um, a lot of health and well-being counseling, a lot of conservative approaches to a variety of different conditions. And I just realized that that was actually a better fit for my philosophy. Wow, that's that's really interesting. So when when did you decide then... Um, to go to chiropractic college. So I, uh, I, I remember I, I had this kind of realization during uh, finals, my third year in, and decided I needed to opt out of that program and started at Northwestern in uh, 1997. Then that following September. Fantastic. So after you graduated from Northwestern, uh, where did you did you practice for a while? You know, I've never been in private practice. I actually started getting involved with research as a student, just as a, a work-study job, as a research assistant. So basically, I made copies for about two years. Um, but you know, I ingratiated myself on the research team, I think, and um, being willing to do about any job in the research department um, it helped me to really I think, learn and appreciate how much goes into the research process. And then after I graduated, I was hired on full-time here at Northwestern as a research assistant and project manager. Wow, that's really terrific. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, your journey and how you got to, to, to do the PhD and, and a little bit about your PhD program then? Sure. Yeah. So after after I graduated from chiropractic school, as I said, I was hired on full time here at Northwestern as a research assistant and project manager. And um, at that time, there had been an NIH um, grant um, awarded to a, a collective of different organizations in the Minnesota Twin Cities area to educate um, complementary and alternative medicine practitioners to conduct more research. And so I was actually the first recipient of um, one of those awards. It was a, a T grant. Um, and so I got to go back to school to get a little bit of extra training on how to conduct clinical trial research. At the same time, um, I also was going to school to get a master's in public health administration. Um, so I had really a more well-rounded perspective of healthcare beyond the education I'd gotten from my chiropractic school to include both research and then um, policy and administration. And all this time, I was just continuing to work in the research department um, as a project manager, then as a co-investigator, and eventually as a principal investigator on my own studies. So I moved through a series of titles to include associate dean of research and knowledge transfer. And right now, I'm the executive director of research and innovation here at the university. All right. Good stuff. Well, we've got a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, so I think we should probably just dive in. Um, you've published a, a lot of great uh, articles in the peer-reviewed literature. 
Um, and, and the first one uh, that I'd like to talk about comes from the journal Manual Therapy. And this is uh, um, a study where you asked patients um, about the, the value that they placed on spinal manipulation and home exercise for back-related leg pain. Can you tell us about that study? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, first I just wanted to touch on you know, why a qualitative study. As we're looking more at quality metrics like satisfaction coming to a play with uh, payment reform, and of course everybody's talking about the triple aim in the United States, how do we improve the patient experience in healthcare while um, enhancing the effectiveness of, of treatments and at lower costs. The bigger question really was, you know, what's driving healthcare decision-making and what drives patient satisfaction? So as a, a research group, we really decided alongside really all of our large-scale randomized clinical trials, we needed to be embedding qualitative research studies so that we actually took the time to ask our study participants you know, what was motivating their healthcare decisions? Um, what was what was informing how satisfied they were with the care they were receiving in the studies? What what determined whether or not the treatment they had was worthwhile in their own mind? So um, this particular study that you're referencing was embedded in a large-scale RCT that was um, funded through the Health Services Research Administration. Um, the full study is published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. But basically, this was a trial that was comparing spinal manipulative therapy with a home exercise program compared to home exercises alone among adults who suffered from back-related leg pain or sciatica. And at the end of their 12-week treatment phase, we conducted qualitative interviews with almost all of the study participants um, just to get their feedback on what was informing their satisfaction with care, what they liked and didn't like about their, their study treatments, and whether or not they thought the care they had was worthwhile. And if so, you know, what were the, what were the variables that made it worthwhile? That's excellent. Now, what were some of the uh, practical points that, um, you came up with uh, from the article after after you heard everybody talk about uh, their experiences. What were some of the things that struck you? Sure. So you know, one of the questions I said that we asked was when you were deciding how satisfied you were with the care you received in the study, what determined how satisfied you were? And um, I think historically, a lot of a lot of clinicians, a lot of researchers, especially you know, particularly from a primary outcome perspective, have always been focusing on pain. How much did my condition improve? Um, and we found in this study, and similar to a lot of our more recent qualitative research studies, that really it's the interaction with providers and with clinic staff that drives satisfaction much more so than a change in pain or a change in condition or the ability to do activities. And we thought that was actually pretty striking um, because it's it was a very large signal. We saw this consistently um, throughout this study and then also similarly in some of the other qualitative studies we've, we've looked at with different patient populations. So that's certainly one striking um, outcome. And um, in contrast to that, when we asked patients you know, whether or not their care was worthwhile, um, they do note that their global perceived effect, how much their condition has changed, determines whether or not things have been worthwhile. So when we think about satisfaction and what, and then comparing that to what actually gives patients a sense of value in the care that they receive, they're actually really thinking about them on two different planes. Hmm. Yeah, that is, that is really interesting. Um, and it seemed that 
when I was taking a look at the article uh, from table four, it, uh, it asked these uh, people in the study what aspect they liked the best. And the global perceived effect was uh, from manipulation was, was very high. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that there are a few more variables at play when they think about exercise and the things that they like and don't like about exercise. But um, when we're focusing on the spinal manipulation component of treatment, um, the improvement in um, their condition or in their pain uh, were, were among the most highest ranking. Terrific. Now, um, another study that, uh, that I'd like to talk about is a, a study looking at um, spinal manipulation and exercise for seniors with chronic neck pain. And this came out in the Spine Journal 2014. Can you tell us about that study? Yeah, this, this was a great study. I was really excited to, to be a part of it because we all know um, spinal manipulation and exercise are two commonly recommended treatments in best practice guidelines for neck and back pain. Um, but th most of those studies are done in kind of a working age adult population. And they really, at the time we had done the study, were no studies conducted looking at the effectiveness of spinal manipulation and exercise interventions in an adult or older adult population, people over the age of 65. So we conducted that RCT. Um, we had three different treatment groups. Home exercise was a component of all three groups because we know that that's a best practice, keeping people um, exercising and moving. So we wanted to include that in all three of the treatment groups. To our second group, in addition to the home exercises, we added spinal manipulative therapy delivered by doctors of chiropractic. And in the third treatment group, we added a supervised rehabilitative exercise program. So it was a much more intensive twice a week working one-on-one -on -one with an exercise therapist to do exercises for the neck and the upper back. And after 12 weeks of treatment, we found that um, there was a cl clinically important treatment effect in favor of the spinal manipulation plus home exercise group um, among these seniors who were suffering from chronic neck pain. And um, interestingly enough, the supervised rehabilitative exercise program, which had been outperforming spinal manipulation in studies among working age adult population, we saw that the supervised program in this study actually didn't add much above and beyond the home exercise program alone. Um, so that was a bit of a, a surprise finding. So again, we found that the spinal manipulation plus home exercises resulted in a greater decrease in pain after 12 weeks of care and um, really non-significant differences between the intensive supervised exercise program and the home exercises alone. Huh. What, what do you think it was that uh, didn't lead to an, a, a better effect with the supervised program? You know, I, I'm not sure. It might be a, a few things. Um, you know, we again, like I said, we, we had seen that pattern among working age adults and we're not seeing it among the older adults. You know, it could be that their neck condition really is genuinely different. You know, we know that um, some of the biological and the psychosocial variables that contribute to neck pain are different in an older adult population than the 18 to 65 year olds who are, are typically studied. So there just might be something um, structurally or mechanically or psychosocially different among this population that made them respond differently. Um, also of note was that we took very 
close, um, paid very close attention to adverse events in the study and side effects. And um, they were most common among the participants in the supervised rehabilitative exercise group. And that, you know, might make sense because we were really um, trying to build strength and endurance among um, the participants in that arm of the trial. So we really were pushing them from a physical perspective. At the same time, um, all of the exercises in that program were individualized. And they, like I said, they were, they were working one-on-one -on -one with an exercise therapist. So we were very careful with them to make sure that we were um, pushing them through progressions appropriately. And yet all that attention never offset um, the side effects that they were experiencing. So those were some, some really quite surpri surprising findings from that study. Yeah, definitely. Now there was a companion paper that you published in the Journal of Rehabilitation Medicine on the perceived value of spinal manipulation therapy amongst these seniors. Can you tell us about that study? Yeah, so that was the um, qualitative companion piece um, to this study. As I had said earlier, we've really been embedding a qualitative component in all of our large-scale RCTs. And we asked similar questions to these seniors as we did with the back-related leg pain study. We asked them when they were deciding on how satisfied they were with their care, you know, what were the things they thought about. And similarly, overwhelmingly, um, they considered their interaction with staff and providers as being a main driver of satisfaction. Interestingly, um, a close second was the exercise recommendations they received in the study. So even though the exercises, especially the more intensive exercises, didn't result in the clinical outcomes that we had expected to see, it was a highly valued part of their care experience. You know, it seemed like they really liked the supervision and the individualization. They felt empowered and really gained a sense of self-efficacy with the recommendations for the exercise. So that was a huge driver of satisfaction, more so than changes in their neck pain or changes in global perceived effect in terms of disability or general improvement. So that was, that was one thing we noted with the qualitative component of the study. Um, when we asked them whether or not treatment was worthwhile, overwhelmingly they said it was. Um, and when we, we probed them to figure out why, um, self-efficacy and gaining the sense that now that they had some tools to help maintain the good results they'd achieved in the study or continue to improve now that the study was done was really by far and away the most important thing in making treatment worthwhile to them. Um, so this sense that, you know, we have an older adult population who I think a lot of providers um, treat like, well, we're just going to try to keep you functioning or try to keep you at the level that you're at. Um, you know, these seniors in particular were really hungry for more and they wanted some tools to feel empowered to take some level of control over their neck pain. So I thought that was another really important finding. Um, and then we asked what participants liked most and like and liked least about the treatments they had in the study. Um, and so those varied obviously by by treatment groups, but you know among the things participants liked the most, especially about the home exercises, was that it was convenient and that it helped them develop a habit or a discipline of getting into exercise. I think everybody knows exercise is important um, and it is a best practice, but they needed some kind of accountability to keep at it, and that's something participants really liked in the study. Wow. Well, that really matches up well with my clinical experience. Uh, just as an anecdote, uh, it's it's the rare patient that comes in that doesn't ask me about some kind of exercise program. 
And that's uh, that would only be if I haven't mentioned it first. <laughs> but usually, <laughs> usually people are asking. Um, you well, know, that's almost, that's great. I, almost right away. The, the yeah. chiropractors out there um, who might be listening to your podcast, you know, anybody who's solely focused on spinal manipulative therapy, which is really probably the mainstay of the majority of our practices are really missing something so valuable if they're not also giving some very simple recommendations for exercise. This doesn't have to be super intensive or overly involved, you know, just two or three kind of key stretching and strengthening exercises really can go a long way, both in terms of helping to supplement and improve the other types of care that you're delivering in your practice, but also giving your patients this sense of empowerment, which from a psychosocial perspective, especially in older adults, is just absolutely so important. Yeah, that's such a huge component. I'm, I'm glad you touched upon that. That's, that's great. Uh, another paper that was related to this one was uh, the uh, adverse events paper you published in Manual Therapies in 2015. And that was adverse events amongst the seniors receiving manipulation and exercise. Could you tell us about what you found in, in that Sure. Yeah. So we, we collected side effects um, a lot of different ways over the course of the study because um, as I had been talking with policymakers and different groups about um, the use of chiropractic services among older adults, the first thing they were saying wasn't, is it effective? It's, is it safe? And, you know, it's an appropriate question. It's a vulnerable population. And yet at the same time, we'd had really very little evidence in the literature about, you know, what are the adverse events that could be expected expected um, among an older adult population receiving spinal manipulation, particularly for neck pain, talking about cervical spinal manipulation and, you know, all the all the concerns about risk of stroke and some of those things. And we, we know from some of the um, analyses of Medicare data that, you know, actually the there's no greater um, risk of, of cervical stroke, particularly among older adults who are receiving spinal manipulative therapy um, compared to seeing a medical physician for neck pain. So um, we just thought it would be really important in the context of a randomized clinical trial to also study this very carefully and, and do a really thorough reporting of it, which is why we published a companion paper on it. So we, of course, were standardly collecting um, adverse event information that would have gone to our um, institutional review board and our data safety and monitoring um, committee. But we were also um, collecting adverse event information at every single treatment visit, asking participants if they'd experienced any side effects or unwanted um, symptoms since the last treatment, and then also asking on standardized questionnaires. And we found that about two-thirds of participants in our study reported experiencing some kind of non-serious adverse event. Um, half of those reported one, and then the, you know, one-third of our total participants reported two or more adverse events over the course of the study. But overwhelmingly, these were um, uh, mild and minor and things that they did not need to seek medical attention for and are probably the things that your listeners would not be surprised by. An aggravation in neck complaint, maybe an increase in muscle soreness. Um, and, you know, we, we kept track of what the distribution was across treatment groups, which Interestingly enough, um, you know, the, the participants in the supervised rehabilitative exercise group, of course, reported more adverse events, whether that was because of the supervised intense 
exercise treatment or whether it was because we saw those patients the most frequently so they had more opportunities to report it's really hard for us to know but um you know, interestingly enough, um, the proportion of, of participants in the spinal manipulation group reported about the same amount of adverse events as those doing the home exercises alone. So that was a bit of a surprise as well. We would have expected to hear more about adverse events in the spinal manipulation group. But that being said, um, Non-serious adverse events happen. They happen commonly. Um, again, they were mostly mild um, and transient in nature. And it just underscored for us the need for chiropractors to get really comfortable talking to their patients about what to expect in terms of adverse events. Um, they are so common, they might be considered a normal part of the course of care for older adults um, who suffer from chronic neck complaints like those in the study here. And that you know, most of the time they're short-lived and, um, you know, really can be managed with some simple um, at-home self-care type measures. Right. And I think it's, it was really neat that you compared it with exercise for the adverse events, because one of the things that I tell people in, in the office after they get their first adjustment in particular is that they might feel a little bit sore, kind of like they did exercise if they haven't been exercising recently, that kind of soreness. Mm -hmm. So I, I use that as yeah, an analogy. That, you know, that's, that's a great analogy because I think most people accept this risk that they're going to be sore with exercise. And if we normalize that they might also experience a little soreness after the spinal manipulative therapy and that is nothing, you know, to be overly concerned about unless, of course, it's extreme we can normalize this part of chiropractic care as well. Um, and, you know, particularly in an older adult population, some of whom might feel um, a little more hesitant or a little more sensitive to those types of adverse events. It's just underscores the need to have that conversation up front. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I, I really appreciated the paper because you measured a lot of different outcomes and I was just impressed that, uh, you know, when you looked at the manipulation group, they had lower non-serious adverse events compared to the supervised exercise group and the home exercise group on on nine out of the eleven measures. So that was that was pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. And another thing, you know, is as um, that we found um, with the adverse events that I think is important worth and worth noting is, you know, if you're giving your your patients some at-home exercises to do, whether they're stretches or strengthening exercises, you know, we have to make sure we're asking about any adverse events they're experiencing with those in addition to what they might be experiencing after, let's say, the manipulative therapy that's being delivered in our offices. Because we did hear a lot um, from participants who um, maybe have shoulder problems or knee problems, um, that they were experiencing problems with those home exercises, especially in the large joints. So it's just another thing for us to kind of keep our on um, as we're managing this patient population. Sure. Don't, don't assume that everything is going well, uh, find out, and then it's an opportunity to make corrections along the way. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about another one of your passions, which is integrative care. So a paper you published uh, a few years back now in BMC Health Services Research was on the integrative care for the management of low back pain, and this was the use of a clinical care pathway. Could you guide us through that paper? Sure. So this was um, part of the methodology of uh, an RCT where we were comparing chiropractic care 
to a team of integrative providers providing care for adults who suffered from chronic back pain. And um, so this paper in particular really broke down how we formed the integrative care team, how the integrative care team operated and worked with one another, and then ultimately proposed treatment plans to study participants, multidisciplinary treatment plans, I should add, to study participants that then the participants got to choose from. So it really was um, a fun study to work on because it was it was like this utopia petri dish of saying, let's design this idealized version of integrative care. So we took a look at the back pain literature and at the time identified all the therapies for which there was some evidence of um, effectiveness for treating adults with low back pain and without evidence of any harm or ineffectiveness. So we landed on um, acupuncture, chiropractic care, cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise therapy, massage therapy, and some um, pharmaceutical use by primary care physicians. And so we pulled these different kinds of practitioners together who were willing to participate as providers in our research study. And we took them through, first of all, a training process where um, we introduced that we wanted this to be a non-hierarchical team and, and we're sure to underscore that there was evidence supporting the modalities used by every all of these types of providers who were on this team and spent some time letting them talk with one another about how they manage back pain patients and learn from one another where there was overlap and where there were differences. And then we came up with um, an algorithm for for proposing treatment plans and carrying out treatment plans for the participants in the study. Um, they met once a week with the help of a, a case manager and a facilitator. They would see patient profiles of our study participants ahead of time after they were randomized to receive the integrative care. And they got to propose treatment plans. And it wasn't just proposing treatment plans uh, using the tools in their own toolbox, but once they got to learn and understand and appreciate what, what the other players on the integrative care team could do, they started recommending one another's therapy. Um, we really were sure to emphasize that um, we wanted to minimize dependence of participants' care on the system, that we wanted to focus on using an evidence-based medicine model so patients' preferences and past experience would come into play with the recommendations, that reassurance and active care was an important best practice for the recommendations. And so over the course of this trial, which was you know several years in duration, um, these providers from these six or seven different disciplines really started sharing one mind almost in terms of their recommendations. And they got really good at picking out, um, oh, this is a patient who, you know, seems really hesitant and is in a high level pain. So they might need some some passive care to bring the, bring the pain level under control. And then we want to couple it with an active therapy. Or this person seems to be depressed, so we might need to bring in some um, cognitive behavioral therapy because they have really um, low self-efficacy and high kinesiophobia or those types of things. And so, you know, this paper really reports on how we built this high functioning integrative team. And then the results of the paper really focus on um, what kind of treatments actually then ended up being used in this study. Um, and I can just kind of touch on some, some highlights there if you'd like, Dean. Um, so we saw oftentimes two or three modalities were coupled together, um, delivered by oftentimes two or three different providers. So the communication between providers was, was very, very important. Um, 
one of the most common treatment options. We're combining massage and exercise and self-care or acupuncture and exercise or acupuncture and exercise and self-care. So it seemed like um, the providers really wanted to couple passive and active management to the patients together. Um, we also allowed um, for benchmarking of outcomes after four and eight weeks of treatment out of a total of a 12 week treatment period. And, um, you know, at those benchmark time points, we allowed them to make changes to the treatment plan. And more common than not, the additional um, services that might have been added for any participants who weren't seeing the types of, of benefit or improvement that would have been anticipated was the addition of cognitive behavioral therapy. So, you know, that was a really interesting learning point in the study that um, while it wasn't commonly recommended in the beginning of a treatment or um, accepted by participants at the beginning of treatment, it was our most common add-on as um, over the course of the intervention phase. So, you know, it just says to me, having somebody on your healthcare team who understands cognitive behavioral therapy or, or you know, some of the psych psychosocial components of, of back pain is a really valuable team member to have. Oh, most definitely. I, I just think the whole idea of this study is very attractive. And it's it's one of these things, uh, I know another interest of yours is is translating health research to, to policy. And so I, I want to get there. But um, before I leave this topic, I, I just wanted to get your sense for how how did people seem to to jive when they all came together? Did, was it a tough a go at first or did everybody seem like they were really keen uh, to get involved? How did it go? Yeah, well, we had the benefit of, you know, these were practitioners who wanted to get involved in a study like this. So you have to assume these are people who were interested in integrative care, wanted to be, um, you know, they were willing participants, so to speak. So, you know, okay. I think we started off with a really good crew. And, um, as I had said, we had a series of, of training sessions before we even started the study, and it really took a little bit of time for them to move beyond just an appreciation of one another, and but really develop kind of a deep-seated, I can see where what you do is better than what I do for X, instead of this ownership of needing to prove that they could be all things to all participants. Um, over actually a relatively short period of time, they they really started almost recommending one another's therapies more than they recommended their own. And, and to us, that was a really interesting phenomenon to see happen. Yeah, that um, is really interesting. When you think about, yeah, when you think about group dynamics, it's the whole, you know, forming, storming, norming, performing. And I think our, our integrative team of providers were in a norming phase relatively early, um, but but really accelerated into a performing um, kind of a dynamic, probably, you know, 15 or 20% into the study um, because they really seemed as they were real-time managing patients to appreciate what everybody else was bringing to the table. Huh. Are there many other studies like this in the literature? <laughs> I'm not aware of any. I mean, there, there have been a few that look at integrative models of care. And oftentimes, you know, that just means... Um, a couple of different provider types co-managing, which, you know, integration really is a spectrum of definitions. I'm not aware of any other study that took this kind of time to really genuinely do a co-management of patients that not just involved this diverse group of providers, but also engaged the, the patients, the study participants. Because as I said, 
the integrative group of providers offered the participants, you know, here are two or three different recommendations. This group of providers came together and, and they're recommending this constellation of care or this constellation of care based on what they saw in, in your case being X, Y, and Z. And then the patient actually had the opportunity to say, you know, I've had this treatment in the past. I'm not excited about it. I'd love to try this, or I've never gone there, or this seems appealing to me right now. And so it really was, I think, evidence-based decision-making kind of in its finest form. Um, so, and that's, that's part of, you know, what made the study so much fun to work on. And of of course, probably also what makes it kind of unrealistic in, in the real world. But it was important to us to do this study and to try to be able to tease out the components of integrative care that might be pragmatic, that seem to work the best, um, help give some direction to other studies as they're looking at how do we pull together an integrative team of providers to study the effectiveness of a group of A providers versus group of B providers. Sure. Well, I think this discussion is going to blend very well into our next segment, which is that I know you spend a lot of time leveraging uh, research to inform healthcare policy. And with what you just talked about, uh, essentially trying to get evidence-based care, um, all the players together to, to help out the patient, how, how can we take this kind of information and bring it into that healthcare policy realm? Sure. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because there are certainly buzzwords in healthcare and these, you know, are, are in and out of vogue depending on the year and whoever's making the policy and integrative care was super hot for a period of time and, and patients were really driving a demand for integrative care, but nobody really knew what integra integrative care looked like. Um, so now, now we're, as we're testing these models and, and taking a look at well, what aspects of integrative care actually matter to patients, actually drive their satisfaction with care and their decision making, may actually result in better outcomes, um, we can make smarter policy decisions. Because just to say integrative care means something different to everyone. So, you know, we really do need to look more carefully at this because integrative care can be expensive. If you're, if you're not, um, if you're not decreasing the total cost of an episode of care on the back end, um, it's, a, it's expensive employing all these kinds of providers. But, you know, as, as payment models are changing towards episode of care, total cost of care, um, the use of integrative care teams, I think, is only going to accelerate and in different types of healthcare settings. So um, I think people are, are, are really interested in this conversation, especially from a policy perspective, because, um, you know, if the whole idea of shifting towards total cost of care is to save money in the long run, uh, we don't want to be wasting too much time with, with team-based care models that actually aren't saving money. Right, right. Well, I'm here in Ohio, and I have a keen interest in trying to translate the research and help out uh, with healthcare policy. What what can people like myself uh, and you know other chiropractors that have this kind of interest what what can they do at a state level or or even a higher level? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, people can act locally or regionally or on a national level to be great advocates on behalf of their patients and on behalf of their profession. Um, you know, on a, on a real local level, just getting involved with other healthcare providers in your area to help 
cultivate integrative care networks um, is, is I think, a brilliant thing. Whether you're in a solo practice or a team practice or practicing in a hospital somewhere, you know, the foundation for all of this advocacy work is trust and building a trusting relationship between you as a steward of the chiropractic community and other healthcare providers. So, um, you know, speaking a common language that really comes from the basis of the scientific literature, I think, is is key. So, you know, all of your listeners who are providers out there, you really have to do understand not just the chiropractic literature, but the evidence um, across disciplines for the best practice management of musculoskeletal conditions. That's our common starting point with everybody. So, speaking a common language is first and foremost keeping everything patient centric you know this isn't about advancing your practice or your career or, or or your profession but it's about really optimizing care as per the triple aim that we talked about in the beginning of this call um and then on a, a state policy level, it's getting engaged with your state associations to advocate for legislation that helps um, remove barriers to integrative care, um, complementary therapies, um, and, and disciplines like chiropractic services. Um, you know, there's a lot of, of bias that's probably antiquated legislation um, that really is impeding our ability to contribute to addressing the burden of, of back pain and neck pain from a public health perspective. So it's getting involved with your state associations and then on a bigger level with your national association just to make sure that we're advocating and enforcing policies that really do help get rid of whatever barriers there are to access to chiropractic and other um, healthcare disciplines services that actually do have some level of ev evidence supporting their utilization. Terrific. Well, I really appreciate those tips. Uh, very, very useful. And I'll, I'll try to get a little bit more active in, in my state association. <laughs> oh, <that's laughs> I great. do what that's I can, great. but uh, I'll have to do some more. Just uh, make sure to, to get it done. Um, sure. Now we are, um, I believe, both going to DC 2017. This is going to be just an amazing uh, chiropractic research it conference, is. the the biggest ever. Um, what are you going to be discussing there? Uh, well, I have a, a presentation, and the title is "Innovation: How Millennials Will Ensure Sustainability for Chiropractic." I do a lot of work with um, the Student American Chiropractic Association and another um, ACA group we call the Millennial Think Tank um, for early career practitioners who are millennials. And um, we do a lot of exploration through those vehicles about um, you know, what are the unique attributes of millennials that are changing the face of chiropractic and, and what is their vision for chiropractic in 20, 30, 40 years from now, and what do we need to be doing today to help actualize that and, and steer things in a, a proactive, um, patient-centered, evidence-based sort of direction. So um, my, my presentation will be all about the things I see in millennials that are, are really going to help ensure that we have a, a, a very bright future for the chiropractic profession moving forward. That's great, that's critical. Absolutely critical. So good stuff. What, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Now, Michelle, what what do you see as some of the important issues today facing chiropractic research? Uh, capacity and funding are probably the two biggest things. And I, I think probably most researchers would put their finger on those right away. Um, but above and beyond that, 
I don't know that we've been as good as we could be with creating a cohesive chiropractic research agenda. Um, because resources are so limited, um, funding is getting harder and harder to attain, um, and our capacity is also quite limited. Um, so I, I, I wish that we were better at um, really putting our heads together as a research community to make sure that we weren't that we aren't duplicating efforts unnecessarily and that we're leveraging our limited resources in a really smart way. Um, and then the other thing that I think is a really important direction that we need to pay a lot of attention to is in the knowledge translation space. I know you had inter interviewed Andre Boussier on one of your other podcasts. And I think the work that, that he's doing with the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative and the work others are doing in the, the knowledge translation space is so important because as a small profession, our, our ability to generate a lot of research um, is limited but our ability to translate and use it and leverage it from a, a policy uh, perspective and to improve patient care is not limited. It's only limited by our, our desire to really engage with the evidence. So I, I think that that's um, an important direction for chiropractic research and the utilization of chiropractic research that we all need to be active participants in. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up Dr. Andre. He uh, and the CCGI have just done a fantastic job. Um, I was on their website the other day, and they've got just some amazing videos uh, of exercises. Uh, we've yeah. talked a lot about exercise today, yeah. and uh, it's all out there for, for chiropractors yeah, to use. No it's charge. Brilliant. It's brilliant, and the best part of it is that they've engaged so many um, I'm going to say just average, but just average clinicians who are opinion leaders and people who are taking this information and really running with it and and using it to improve their patients' care, but also be advocates on a lot of different local and provincial and national levels. So it's really an exciting project that they have. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Was there anything else that uh, you'd like to talk about before we go? Um, you know, I think just um, maybe letting your listeners know, we have a, another study that um, we're kind of finishing writing up now, but it's comparing, it's another study on the older adult population. We were looking at people over 65 who have neck and back related disability, because we saw that a lot in our earlier studies. And um, we're comparing this this question of, you know, is it, is it realistic to think that we can just treat them for a short period of time and achieve good outcomes? Or do we need to start managing neck and back pain and disability more like um, we do diabetes or, or a heart problem, you know, something that's more over the long term. So we're actually comparing 12 weeks of spinal manipulation and home exercises with um uh, so it's a three-month period with a nine-month period of care. Just to really get at that question of, um, you know, chiropractors talk a lot about maintenance care. What does that mean? And, and, and does a longer-term treatment plan um, really result in better long-term outcomes? So we're just finishing up writing that paper so everybody can stay tuned to see what the results of that are. I would love to have you back on when that paper is, is out and published. We'll, we'll talk about that. That sounds terrific. It'd be my pleasure. Oh, that would be great. Well, before I do let you go, one, one of the goals of the podcast is to motivate and assist practitioners and students alike to pursue research careers in chiropractic science. And oftentimes I ask people what 
advice they'd give to these folks uh, to to enter the profession of, of research. Do you, do you have any tips? Sure. A um, couple thoughts. Research is, is a tough business. Um, so if you want to get all in and be a research scientist, you really have to be all in. And if you're going to be all in, find a team who inspires you, who is um, collaborative, a team who um, you know, really collaborates across disciplines and across institutions, because that's definitely the wave of research moving forward. And then for uh, everyone who is interested in research, but also wants to practice, I, I just have to say, and I advise students all the time, you know, there are very few people who do research part-time while having a, a clinical practice. Um, it can be done through practice-based research networks and contributing to those. Um, and I think some of the best examples are clinicians who are what I'd call high-level users of research. And those people have a huge impact on um, both the state of the evidence, but mostly the application in that knowledge translation space. They're not necessarily generating new research knowledge, but really applying it in brilliant ways. Um, so, you know, I think there are a lot of different ways for a chiropractor to get engaged in research and whether you make that your career um, full-time or um, engage in it in other ways through knowledge translation or, or a practice-based research network or, or just being a high-level user, um, I think there's a lot of areas to contribute to the overall state of chiropractic knowledge. Yeah, perfect. And I'm really glad you brought up the idea about knowledge translation. Uh, I'm a member of several uh, Facebook um, uh, organizations, I guess, or, or sites. And, uh, and some of these people do just an amazing job at uh, helping to translate the knowledge and stimulating discussion. There's so many ways that chiropractors can get involved. And as you say, they can have just a huge impact on the profession. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Myers, for being on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you.